Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Natalie Haynes on Women in the Greek Myths in her new book, Pandora's Jar. Natalie Haynes is a writer and broadcaster. She writes for The Guardian and The Independent. She was a judge for the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction, the 2013 Man Booker Prize and the 2014 Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. She's also the author of three novels, The Amber Fury, The Children of Jocasta and A Thousand Ships, as well as two non-fiction books, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life and Pandora's Jar, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Natalie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Oh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be back. I should say the full title, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. So um, yes. tell us what the idea behind this one is. Well, I guess I've been sort of writing, rewriting Greek myth for the last three novels in various ways. And one of the kind of nice things about having a slightly, what is it they call it, a portfolio career, as I do, is that it means I've been able to write stand-up shows, live shows, to sort of go with each novel. The novels are usually sad, the shows are usually fun. Uh, Well, I hope the novels are fun, but you know what I mean. And it became kind of a thing where people would say, you know, so in A Thousand Ships, what's the, you know, the real story of this? Or, you know, what's the original story of this? And I kept having to say at these talks, well, there isn't really an original version of this story or, you know, there is no true version of this story. And I thought, actually, it would be really lovely to, between novels, to write a nonfiction book about 10 women in Greek myth whose stories have been sort of changed, distorted, sometimes lost through time and see how that worked and why it might have happened. So, you know, the title is Pandora's Jar because Pandora is one of the great wronged women of Greek myth down to a tiny mistranslation by Erasmus, I think. Yeah, not only was Pandora wronged, but her jar was wronged as well. And, um... Everything about her was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, so... we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But yeah, the idea that if we know any of these stories, and you know, a lot of us do know at least parts of the stories of these women, yes. where do we tend to know them from? Because it, it isn't the original versions. No, it's a sort of mishmash. I mean, I think you would be hard pushed to find a person alive in the UK today who doesn't best know the story of Medusa from the Ray Harryhausen Clash of the Titans. I mean, I think that's just true. It was on every bank holiday by law through our childhood. So, you know, it, it's been pretty tough to avoid. 
Sometimes I think they're sort of versions of Greek myths that we're given as children, you know, Roger Lancelin Green or Nathaniel Hawthorne, these sort of slightly oversimplified, in my view, versions of, of Greek myths that we got to read as kids. I don't think very many of us get to study them at school, unfortunately, or certainly not in Greek or in Latin in the case of Ovid. I think sometimes we come to them through artworks. Sometimes we come to them through studying English literature, you know, and you need these stories as kind of as backstory for the stuff that you're going to study in, in modern languages often. So I think people come at them through lots of, of different and, and sometimes contradictory almost directions. I guess my concern is that we tend to assume that the first version we encounter is, for want of a better phrase, the right one. And so it, it vexes me a little that a lot of those first encounters are sort of, you know, 50 or 100 or 150 years old themselves. So they have a whole modern set of, of uh, modern-ish set of prejudices, quite aside from the ancient ones they might be dealing with. So let's start, we're going to go through a whistle-stop tour through the women that you write about in the book and starting with Pandora. Yeah, and her, the book's called Pandora's Jar, but surely it's Pandora's Box, isn't it? Well, only if you mistranslate it a la Erasmus, I'm afraid. So Erasmus is uh, cheerily translating the story from Hesiod into Latin. Hesiod is in Greek. And he finds the word pithos, uh, which means jar, and he translates it as pixis, which means box. And this might sound like quite a minor linguistic shift but greek jars as i'm sure you know are very very narrow at the base and they widen right out they're pretty unstable they tended to be have you know stacked on their sides if you see them in museums sometimes they're sort of lashed together because otherwise they'll roll off if there's an earthquake or depending on where the museum is this is a, a ever-present risk in some parts of the world and you know you can see the cracks in them that have been repaired for them to be on display so it's like well these don't look like very stable things so you know it's, it's quite a precarious thing to put and then there's a debate about what's inside the jar sometimes it's bad things that's the version we tend to think about but sometimes it's good things in some versions of the story pandora opens the jar in some versions her husband epimetheus opens the jar in some versions the jar is simply opened sometimes we always seem to blame pandora for it but actually you know there's no particularly strong reason for doing that and hesiod tells her story two times in what the first version he doesn't mention the jar at all in the second version he does and it, it is opened but it kind of bothers me within about 30 years of erasmus making this mistranslation you start to see visual images of pandora uh, with a box. If you look at ancient visual images of Pandora, there isn't a single one which shows her with any kind of receptacle at all. She is always shown in the act of being created because she's made by all the other gods. And that, for the Greeks, is her big, you know, raison d'etre. It's the fact that she's the ancestor of all women. And, you know, and that's her big deal. The the box thing is a huge issue for us. But it wasn't for them. It just wasn't interesting enough to include on the visual imagery that at least everything that survives of her. And I think what happens is that her story gets kind of overlapped with that of Eve, and so Pandora in Greek myth is a sort of agent of change. She shakes things up at Zeus's behest. He's angry that Prometheus has stolen fire from the gods to give it to mortals. And so he decides that a sort of price must be exacted and that's having everything shaken up. But things have already been shaken up because now we have fire. Right? So she is an agent of change. As soon as it's sort of overlaid with Christian iconography and values, then she becomes, you know, the woman who destroys the world by letting all the evils out into it. And you go, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Excuse me, I have a small question. So yeah, I felt Pandora really deserved a bit of reclaiming. And it's interesting that you, to contrast her with Eve, because the first Greek woman that you, you discuss in this book, uh, the yeah. story... She's the first woman full stop. No woman yeah. before Pandora. And a lot of these stories, you can see where stereotypes 
of how people think of women through the ages have come from. So Pandora is the cause of all the trouble in the world. Um, You know, we're going to get stories in in a while of women invent stories about being raped. Women are terrible, you know, evil stepmothers. Women will kill your children. Stepmothers, bad wives. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of villainous women in this book, but I don't think any of them is a villain. Let's move on to... Well, actually, I want to talk about some of the other... Because the idea of... Um, before, we, before we move on, you talk about some of the other occurrences of this image that's come from, you know, our idea of Pandora's box and the thing in the box, particularly throughout popular culture. And you talk about, say, the fantastic noir film Kiss Me Deadly and Pulp Fiction, That is for a instance. mad film. Amazing it's film. Absolutely bonkers. Yeah, it's an image that even becoming, I guess, even in sort of advertising and stuff, becoming disassociated from that original original story of what it actually means is an image that we're all familiar with. Yeah, and I think the the value of the mystery increases when the size of the box decreases. That's my feeling. The, the I think it reaches its pinnacle in that Twilight Zone episode called Button Button. I think based on a Richard Matheson story. Where a couple? Do you remember this episode? A couple is given a box. I remember it from your book. I don't think I've ever seen that episode, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a a not particularly good feature film based on it with Cameron Diaz a few years ago, which I had to review, and I hadn't seen the original then. But luckily, I knew a man who uh, who could help me out with some Twilight Zone DVDs. But there's this couple who are skint and they they have financial worries. And a man comes to their door, a stranger, and there's a box which he gives them, and it has a button on the top. And you can open the box. There's nothing inside it, as far as they can tell. No wiring, nothing. And he says, if you press this button, somebody you don't know will die, but you'll get $200,000. And then they have to sort of decide what to do. And I'm not going to spoil the episode or indeed the book for you by telling you what they conclude is the right answer. But there is something absolutely, it seems to me, accurate in the idea that the sort of smaller it is, somehow the more hard it is to resist I use the example in the book, and this is absolutely true. I generally don't struggle to keep myself safe. I'm pretty good at crossing the road. Actually, I'm terrible at crossing the road. But generally, I look after myself pretty well. And yet I cannot see a a little sachet of silica gel with the words do not eat on it without thinking, "Mm, silica gel. I just can't do it. Let's move on to to Jocasta. And, And of course, a couple of years ago, we spent a whole episode talking about Jocasta and her children and and you you sort of hinted at this in your introduction but I wanted to sort of talk about how well this book works as a companion piece to to your novels. Yeah I hope it does because obviously I told Jocasta's story for want of a better phrase from the inside out in The Children of Jocasta um, because it's a novel so you get a lot of her in her life and this time obviously it's a more analytic you know looking at her from the outside affair but actually what was interesting for me was being able to sort of finally unfold and say these are all the places that my Jocasta came from because I think a lot of people assume quite understandably that the only kind of source we have for Jocasta is Oedipus Tyrannus the Sophocles play Oedipus the King not Oedipus Rex (laughs) not Oedipus Rex because she's not a dinosaur (laughs) she's not Roman you know I won't have it but yeah, no, I th- she only has 120 lines in that play. And so it's a, it's a really quite minor role. It's not even, I think it's about 8% of the dialogue. And the, the interesting thing about Jocasta is that there are different versions of her when she does get a lot more stage time. But the versions of the story of Oedipus and Jocasta, which we can see even across about a space of about 300 years, 
in the ancient world, the differences between her are just astonishing. So the earliest version we have is in Homer, in book 11 of the Odyssey, uh, where he, Odysseus goes down to the underworld to get some advice from Tiresias. The advice obviously can be abbreviated in every way to don't poke out the single eye of the son of the sea god when you have a sea voyage to make home, mate. Uh, but anyway, spoiler. And he sees this set of, of famous dead women from Greek myth. And one of them is Calais and Epicastan, beautiful Epicast. Uh, as Homer calls her. And he goes on to tell the story of Oedipus and Jocasta, who get married without knowing their mother and son. And then the news of their crime is revealed. And she rushes down to Hades, and he's left behind to rule Thebes, you know, bearing all this sorrow and, and guilt. And it's only a little 10-line version, but it's sort of pretty much 50-50. The emphasis is on both of them. And Jocasta obviously has a different name. Uh, she's called Epicast, but it's the same woman. When you look at, for example, the version of Jocasta that we can see in Euripides' play, The Foinisai, which is a little bit later than Oedipus Tyrannus, but it draws on a tradition which dates back at least about 150 years to Stesichorus and probably further, then there's a version of their story where they are found out uh, very quickly after... Actually, well, not that quickly, I guess, after getting married, because they have enough time to have children. And he is bundled, Oedipus is bundled into prison, basically. He's sort of shut up in the palace because everyone's so ashamed of him. But she carries on being queen, you know, being queen of Thebes. And their two sons, Polynices and Eteocles, eventually take over and then declare war on one another. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. And the play, The Foinicide, begins with Jocasta coming out and, and sort of revealing herself as this sort of high-end diplomat who's negotiating between these two warring factions, ultimately, unsuccessfully. But still, this idea of a woman who's so shamed by her action that she kills herself on the day she finds out about it is simply not present here. You know, she is a woman who carries on having regal authority in this version of the story. And it's as old, as valid as the version that we all know a bit better. And I thought, well, there is something interesting, isn't there, about the fact that we've given priority to a version of the story where she's a really minor character and she just sort of disappears. And don't get me wrong, I bow to no woman in my love for the play Oedipus Tyrannus. It is an actual, absolute masterpiece. But because it's so focused on Oedipus's experience, it kind of sucks the light and air out of everybody else in the story. And when you see the story retold with more focus on, on her, on Jocasta, by Euripides, for example, you realise that your understanding of the Sophocles is sort of improved by knowing more about her in another version. You know, it's, it's pretty rare that learning more about a character makes the story worse. So, yeah, it was a real treat for me to be able to kind of explore these, these stories of Jocasta and also to discover something which I hadn't up until that point known, which is that there aren't any paintings, vase paintings or sculptures of Jocasta from the ancient world at all. So we might have just been unlucky with what survives, but the the more likely answer is that she's committed the ultimate crime against art, which is to be a woman over 35. So I'm afraid we're not allowed to see you. <laughs> there we go. Well, the concept of being a woman over 35 is going to come up again very shortly. But... um. Just as an aside, while we're thinking about other versions, multiple versions of all of these stories, there's a fella that keeps cropping up in this book who goes by the the name which never never ceased to raise a, a giggle for me of um, Pseudo Polydorus. What's that all about? <laughs> Pseudo Polydorus for a really long time. We thought this book was written, this collection of, uh, of stories from Greek myth, we thought and, and was attributed for a really long time to a writer called Apollodorus. And then it became clear, or reasonably clear, that there were a few you know, academics hanging on to the idea that it might have been him, that it in fact wasn't him, but we don't know who it was. They are nameless. And so uh, pseudo-Apollodorus is, is what he's now known as. And to be honest, when I wrote the first draft, I pretty much 50-50 swapped between 
calling him by his full proper name, Pseudo Apollodorus, or just calling him Apollodorus to save time. But in the end, I thought if we publish it with the Apollodorus, as a, then I'll just get loads of people writing him with green ink going, I think Miss Haynes will find, you know, oh, Christ, shut up. So I thought I would just save them all the effort, or at least they can, you know, obviously use their exertions elsewhere and find other things to be annoyed about. But uh, yes, it is a funny name. I'm not going to lie to you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natalie Haynes, and we're talking about her latest book, which is Pandora's Jar: Women in the Greek Myths. And Natalie, I said we were going to return back to the vexed issue of women who disappear out of popular culture once they um, reach a certain age. And I want to talk about Helen because during the story of Helen, I kept getting sidetracked by trying to work out how old all of these people were because Paris abducts Helen or takes Helen before Achilles is even born. Yes, it doesn't fit, I'm afraid. It's a perfect case in point of what happens with trying to find the right, with heavy inverted commas rather, uh, version of a story. Yeah, so Helen and Paris elope or he takes her, depending on your favoured version of the story. And then in some versions of their stories, I think in Homer, I'm right, in the Iliad, I'm right to say, they've already been away from Sparta for 10 years before the Trojan War begins. So they spend 10 years, like a sort of inverse odyssey, they spend 10 years either travelling to Troy or just living happily ever after in Troy before the Greeks invade. So that gives them 20 years, which is just about... But yeah, it does. it, it is a real issue. And she has a, a daughter when she leaves Sparta called Hermione. But when she gets home, her daughter still seems sort of about a teenager and, and the time seems to be kind of perpetually elastic in this and plenty of other parts of Greek myth. And so you you have to work really hard to, to kind of square them off. But the reason, of course, is that 
you have these st- stories of Helen and stories of Achilles. They're such integral characters to the story of the Trojan War that their stories are being told by multiple bards across the Greek world over a period of, you know, hundreds of years. And so you'll end up with stories that focus really hard on a local hero element, for example. You know, when you get to the Amazons, you end up with a version of the stories which has lots of Theseus in it. And that's obviously come from Athens, where he's the local hero. And then, you know, if you go to somewhere else like Thebes uh, or Tiryns, then you'll get lots of extra Hercules slash Heracles, because these are the kind of local celebrities, I suppose, for the way that stories are told and people want to hear about characters they like. And so, yeah, the Helen Paris timeline is absolutely impossible to fit around the people who fit around them. Try as hard as you might. And I had to work really hard with A Thousand Ships for you not to notice. (laughs) It made it through to about the fourth edit before eventually somebody went, can I just... Yeah, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) You just can't can't make it fit for you. I've done my best. Helen's a a great example of a character where there are multiple different versions of her story, multiple different motivations for why she did what she did or causes for why she did what she did, aren't there? Yeah, and what she did is, is open to debate because in the version that we all know, she's Helen of Troy. She goes to Troy and that's the thing we know about her. But the version which is at least as old as Homer, there's an alternative version of her story where she doesn't go to Troy at all. She goes to Egypt. And she spends the entire war in Egypt totally blamelessly while the gods send an image of her. Erdalon is the word in Greek. Um, So something which is made of air, but it looks exactly like her. And the war is fought in the same way over what the Greeks and Trojans both believe to be Helen. And then in the final moment, when the Greeks get their hands on her, she disappears into the air that she was made from. And so Helen gets her name kind of derided across the Greek world but she's completely blameless you know she spends 10 years not having an affair with anybody but being considered the great adulteress so yeah it's Helen's story is really really difficult and really you know the the bit of her story that we don't kind of think about very often is the fact that she's abducted as a child the Trojan War is the second war she's embroiled in but she's abducted as a child bride by Theseus who at the time must be in his 50s And he and his friend Perithoos, I think, decide they would both like daughters of Zeus as wives. And so they basically don't quite toss a coin because coins don't exist yet, but they pretty much, you know, draw straws. And they decide to go down to the underworld and get Persephone for Perithoos, and Theseus will just kidnap Helen. And at the time, according to various sources, she's either seven or ten years old. And some of those sources have her giving birth to a daughter before she's returned to her brothers. Um, So the war is obviously quite a long time. It's like... We don't often, you know, when we have the sort of fun adventure of Theseus and the Minotaur, we don't spend very much time thinking about the bit where he's a predatory paedophile and serial killer of women. But anyway, <laughs> here it is. So, yeah, and yet that's a story which dates back, you know, as I say, at least as, as far as Homer. And queasiness about Theseus's dubious decisions dates back certainly as far as Plutarch, for example, who's very uncertain about Theseus as a hero precisely because he's so shady in his dealings with women and and Helen as a as a child more than most it is interesting how you know even in the semi-modern era somebody like Roger Lanslin Green will tidy up the story of somebody like Theseus rather than you know say well you know what these guys are all assholes let's talk about Penteselea or something instead. Absolutely. I mean, it is kind of frustrating because obviously I don't particularly want children's books to be full of, you know, scenes where women in Greek myth get raped, you understand. But 
there is something really dubious about sanitizing these male heroes so that their extremely unpleasant behavior in the case of Theseus, who is, as I say, he's a serial killer of women and a serial rapist of women whose fathers he's killed, for example. And it is pretty unpleasant. And, and then you'll kind of get his story presented in, in children's books. Lancelin Green is the perfect illustration. And, you know, he's gone around killing some miscreants and that's it. And you kind of go, well, that's a very simplistic way of reading this. And I don't particularly expect a children's book to do something different from that i guess but it bothers me that there's no kind of corrective children's book where you know as you say penthesilea gets to go and fight and be a hero i don't expect people to necessarily share every bleakest part of greek tragedy with an eight-year-old but it'd be nice if there was a an alternative puffin book of Greek myths with women in it who get to do stuff rather than get erased from the stories of male adventurers who are extremely dubious. And this wouldn't even be have to be some sort of what you know, some sort of woke revisionism. It really wouldn't. It, it wouldn't would because be yeah, those those Amazons were were seen as incredible warriors at that time Absolutely. as well. I mean, Amazons were an incredibly popular part of ancient art um, and ancient storytelling. You know, and if we read. Quintus Manaeus's Fall of Troy with the same enthusiasm that we read, you know, Homer's Iliad, we would all know the story of Penthesilea forwards and backwards, but we don't. You know, we prefer the story of doomed men fighting over other men rather than a doomed woman fighting, you know, for honour. And it's like, well, I... I have a problem with that because this story is also great. I don't want people to not read the Iliad. I just want them to also read this. And, you know, Amazons were an incredibly popular part of, of ancient visual arts. They're the second most popular mythological characters to be painted on vases in all surviving ancient Greek vases that we have in the 5th century. The most popular Heracles and the second most popular Amazons. We have the names of dozens of them painted onto vases. So, you know, we know the names of loads of Amazons. It's wonderful. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the way that ancient Greek stories and myth are told now because we just don't focus on those very much. And it seems to me a terrible shame, you know, if you want to get more people involved in reading classics and you know thinking about classics it, it seems to me a peculiar choice to not emphasize half the world <laughs> just a thought of all the the women you look at in this book um including you know ones that murder their own children perhaps yes. the one with um most in need of a of a good pr person is medusa how has the uh, yeah. the story that's come down to us of who medusa is come about well this is a good question because i think medusa is one of the most interesting examples of actual literal monstering of a rape victim anywhere in history so what happens with medusa is that she is well to be fair in one version of her story which i think is in pindar uh, she has consensual sex with poseidon but in most versions of her story um, it's much less consensual in some versions of that story pindar it happens in a a damp meadow, which I might add has exactly the same double meaning. If you're thinking fanar fanar, go right ahead, it's in the Greek. But in some versions of her story, and the, the version that is perhaps most interesting to me, she's raped by Poseidon in the temple of Athene. And Athene is so appalled by this act that she takes her revenge, not as one might hope, on Poseidon, the rapist, but on Medusa, the rape victim. And her revenge is to transform Medusa. This story is in Ovid's Metamorphoses, so obviously a story of transformation, is to transform her hair, which is her great beauty, according to Ovid. She has very, very beautiful hair, so that it, it becomes snakes. And we assume at this point this is where she acquires her lithifying gaze, but it doesn't actually say that in Ovid. 
Um, she may have always had it, but but we don't know that. And so it is a really extraordinary example. You know, when people ask about Greek myth and why it's still relevant and why we should, it's like, well, this is why, isn't it? It's because right here is a is an archetype, a, a metaphor for what happens to women who survive sexual assault. It's that people don't believe them and, and make them the villain of the piece. And that seemed to me so remarkable. It's my, it's going to be my next novel, um, Medusa. I was so astonished as I was writing the chapter. I was kind of confronting my own prejudices over and over again. And one of the things that made me really see it was there was a meme that went round when Christine Blasey Ford was giving her evidence to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Do you remember? And uh, the image that was very popularly uh, doing the rounds during the previous presidential election, for example, had been images of Perseus holding up the decapitated head of Medusa, either the Canova, which is a copy of which is in the Met Museum in New York, or the Cellini, which is in Florence, but a, a triumphalist. I mean, literally the title of the Canova is Perseus Triumphant, this naked man holding up the body, uh, holding up the head rather of, of a woman he's decapitated, a monster perhaps we should see her as that he's decapitated. And when Christine Blasey Ford gave her evidence, there was a meme that was just, I was so surprised by my response to it that it properly made me reconsider how I looked at the world because it was a gender switched meme. So uh, it became a statue of Medusa as a very sort of lithe, athletic, beautiful woman holding up the decapitated head of Perseus. And in some versions of the meme, it was just that, a black background and this white statue. And in some versions, there was text and it said next to her head at the top of the screen, be thankful we just want equality. And then next to his decapitated head, lower down and not payback. And the first time I saw that, I gasped, literally gasped. I was like, oh, that's such a shocking image. And I thought, how many times have you seen the image of her head and not gasped? And I realized that not only was I trying to kind of dig these stories out of places like Pindar or, you know, out from the front of temples where Gorgonea, Gorgon heads were uh, once commonplace as, as apotropaic protective devices, but I was trying to dig it out of my own assumptions and, and prejudices. So, yeah, Medusa was, was an important chapter for me. I was raging about her mistreatment in a festival, book festival, also a festival last summer, to Philippa Perry. And she looked at me very hard and said, I just don't know what's going to happen when you find out about the next 2,000 years of mis- Oh <laughs> like, well, yes, that's a, you make an excellent point. But I felt exactly, I felt just as angry, I felt just as fresh a wound to me as if it had happened 20 minutes ago. And I thought, oh, I must be ready to write a novel about somebody again because look how angry and stressed I am. We'll just do one more, and um, there's plenty of women we've not talked about. Um, I guess I most regret Clytemnestra because we don't get Shall to talk like again about... Well, I want to talk about Medea to finish off with. Deeply regret the fact that there's not a stop-motion version of, of Medea that we were watched as children. Yeah, I know. I feel very aggrieved that she gets all her um, amazing moments taken out of... There's no good child murder in Jason and the Argonauts. In fact, there's not much good Medea in Jason and the Argonauts. I'm afraid that Medea gets sidelined by Honor Blackman being... Uh, Hera, doesn't she? Because Jason and the Argonauts, and I love it, obviously, as a film, does suffer very badly from the Smurfette principle. They can only have one woman and hundreds of Argonauts at any given time. So, here we go. Um, So, as I remember it, at least, in Jason and the Argonauts, Medea barely says anything, and she just turns up and dies, and then gets revived with the shimmering golden fleece. But in Apollonius of Rhodes, for example... Then it's Medea who, remember that big bronze giant that we're all terrified of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Medea who kills him. And remember the snake that kills Medea in the film? Yeah, it's Medea who kills him and so on and so on. So 
Yeah, I always feel she's been mistreated by the fact that we kind of think of her as, as just being this villainous woman who kills her children, although she is certainly also a villainous woman who kills children. That is undeniable. She has form for killing children, even before she kills her own children. So, yes, she is a villain, but a villain I love, I'm afraid. Well, I wanted to talk about how, interestingly, in comparison to like a lot of women's stories that have been sort of like forgotten, Medea is obviously still a you know a much performed and a much loved yeah. theatrical piece. But how in the modern day that story has been sort of softened for a modern audience? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've seen, I reckon, I've seen about thirty productions of Medea over the years. I wrote my dissertation on it. You know, I'm, I, I think it's. Euripides' play is just an absolute masterpiece, uh, a masterpiece of characterization. It's one of the greatest roles women ever get to play in the theatre. And so I think that's why it keeps being performed and performed. And also it has a kind of contemporary resonance, which we might, you know, wish away. But it's it's not as present in a play like Oedipus Tyrannus, where, you know, most of us don't know. We might have a sort of psychological feeling about what it's like to want to overthrow a parent and to have a sort of attraction to the opposite sex who's a bit like our opposite sex parent. But generally, most of us don't know what it's like to kill our father and marry our mother, I am assuming. Whereas most of us have seen a couple who weaponize their children in a divorce. And that, of course, is what happens in, in Euripides' Medea. There are still, tragically, there are still cases of parents who kill children every year and Medea killings, as they are often known. There's not a huge number, about two a year, I think. There are, I might add, uh, we never talk about them in the same way, but there are, of course, Hercules killings, Hercules being a father who kills his children in exactly the same way. But we don't talk about it anywhere near as often. And I might add the play, which sort of, Euripides play, which describes that we don't, we don't see performed almost at all. I don't think I've ever seen it on the stage, in fact, I've only ever read it. You know, Plutarch was wise to this and, you know, writing about Phaedra two millennia ago, he said, you know, there are other stories about Theseus being really dodgy, but those haven't been put on the stage. So he knew it was all about which stories we choose to tell and which stories we choose to ignore and which ones get the focus and which ones don't. But Medea is a is a play that I've been writing about for so long. When I came to write about it this time, I was still finding things in it which I hadn't noticed before. And I thought, God, I've, I've been in conversation somehow with this play for, I don't know, 28 years or something. How am I still finding new things in it? But there you are. That's genius for you, I suppose. So I've been talking to Natalie Haynes. We've been talking about her latest book, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths, which is out now from Picador. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. It is always a pleasure, every single time. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.